Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, September 3rd. We begin with answers to your COVID-19 questions and myth-busting surrounding the virus. We are joined by University of Calgary Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Craig Janney. Next, we look at the work done by public health officials through the pandemic. We speak with a professor of philosophy about the importance of maintaining trust with the public as the crisis continues. Then the question of whether historically significant statues and monuments should be removed when the subject turns out to have a controversial past. We get the thoughts of Dwayne Bratt, political scientist with Mount Royal University. And finally, it's a chance to hear some great music, socially distanced, while raising money for a good cause. We find out the details on the High River District Healthcare Foundation's Big Screen Harvest Party. Last night was the first of three debates featuring all of the major Canadian party leaders ahead of the federal election. This morning, we're joined by political reporter Amanda Connolly from Global News to talk a little bit about last night's French debate. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, for a lot I'm of glad people, to be here. a lot of people probably didn't watch it because it was in French. So you can help us break down the issues and and maybe your main takeaway from last night's debate. What did you notice about what was said and and how they all acted too? Absolutely. Why? Well, you know, the French debates are really interesting because, of course, even though a, a lot of Canadians uh, likely will not watch it if they're not comfortable in French or don't uh, don't understand the language, they really tell us a lot about kind of where the parties are at and also kind of give us a bit of an indication of where they see their own prospects and kind of what the, the focus is for, for each party. There's a saying in politics, you know, Ontario decides which party will form government. But it's Quebec that decides whether that will be a minority or a majority government. And we've certainly seen that in the last couple of elections here. So uh, really what we saw in the debate last time, again, was it was fairly fiery at times. It was spicy. You can certainly say a little bit spicy with the leaders. Uh, really kind of a display of, of who was more comfortable in French and kind of how they could adapt to being challenged there. But really a lot of focus on the pandemic response so far, particularly aimed at Justin Trudeau for his decision to call an election during the fourth wave, but also questions put to Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole about things like vaccination status of his candidates, uh, mandatory vaccines, the role for rapid tests amid the conversations about vaccine mandates in some workplaces and public spaces. And so really kind of a a conversation about um, where the country is going next right now, but really aiming a lot at that, that kind of key Quebec electorate for the vote coming up. Amanda, you know, one of the takeaways from the uh, reviews I've read was Liberal leader Justin Trudeau saying, hey, you know what, if this works out to be another minority, Canadians could be at the polls again in 18 months. And I think that might uh, catch a lot of people's attention. What did the other leaders have to say about that statement? Yeah, this was an interesting comment. I think there there are some mixed reactions. I think in in perceiving how this was uh, this was conveyed. Um, you're, you're right. He did kind of raise the prospect that that without a majority government, uh, Canadians will likely be back at the polls uh, in in a pretty short period of time. Here, uh, that in terms of things like you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily interpret that as anything akin to a threat necessarily. That is historically the time frame for for minority governments we know they rarely outlast around 18 to 24 months that's just kind of how they go uh before before the kind of um the cordiality and collegiality in the House of Commons starts to really break down. Uh, and so that, that I think, was kind of the, the pitch that he is making as we come into the end game of this campaign here, really looking to put that decision and that uh, pressure, in a sense, on voters saying, look, unless you want to be coming back here soon, the only, the only way to avoid another election shortly is to give me a majority. We know that the, the Liberals, um, again, they had a majority when they were first elected. They lost that in the last, the last election campaign and would, I, I, 
very much like to get that back. The polls, though, really are suggesting they're they're having a bit of an uphill battle in that regard. And I think that's why we're seeing this this reference being put out to voters that, well, you know, unless you want to be back at the polls, you have to vote for me. Um, and a little bit of the, the kind of insight there in the politicking. Mm-hmm. We thank you very much for your time. We've got another French language debate coming up next week, along with an English one. So I know you you folks at Global and, and we here at 770 will be watching it very closely. Maybe we'll chat again. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Appreciate it. Amanda Connolly, Global News political reporter. John Rapley, Professor John Rapley, a political economist at the University of Cambridge, and joins us now to talk about the future of the Canadian housing market. And if any plans, the proposed campaigners, uh, the uh, leaders of the federal parties, are promising at this point, will make homes more affordable for the average Canadian. To discuss, we're joined by Professor Rapley. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you both. Thank you for taking the time with us. And, uh, you know, getting to the bottom of this, it's just such a bizarre time. So that's why we love to lean on an expert like yourself. What has caused the spike in housing prices over the summer? And are the prices that we've seen, the inflated prices, here to stay? Uh, Well, I'm not an expert in the Canadian housing market. What I can say is that this is a problem or a phenomenon that is uh, showing up in several Western countries and, in fact, in several countries around the world that have to do with demographics changing geography, the impact of the pandemic, and then, of course, government policies and central bank policies. So it's a sort of cocktail that comes together and has been driving prices higher and higher. And the big debate is really over whether it's sustainable or not. So, Professor, let's talk about the strategies. Uh, it's become an, ele- an election issue, obviously, for all of the federal parties here in our country. So uh, what are they focusing on to try and make this housing market more affordable across Canada? And, and will it even have an impact, do you think? Well, I had a quick look at the party manifestos. And from what I can tell, I mean, the Liberal, sorry, the um, NDP and the Conservatives seem to have fairly ambitious plans for increasing supply, which in principle would make housing more affordable. Uh, the Liberals don't seem to offer anything terribly ambitious, from what I can tell. Um, it seems more like a, a sort of soft devotion than anything else. But the fundamental problem is that it's one thing to announce at the federal level sort of ambitious plans and figures. The thing about housing is that it is very much a local issue, and all politics mm-hmm. is often local. It's when developers come into communities. In principle, most people would say, well, it's a good thing to supply more housing to people who need housing. But in practice, when developers come in and the plans are announced to build new houses in the community, that's when things generally run into obstacles because that would then affect potentially housing values in that community. It would affect the livability as far as people living in the community go. And above all, it affects what for many Canadians is their biggest investment. And so they take a strong interest in that. And even though they don't say, no, we don't want, you know, we, we want homeless people to stick around. They just sort of say it's the old syndrome, NIMBY, not in my backyard. So we want better, but uh, we don't want to make the changes to make things better. Very interesting conundrum. I'm wondering, and this is something that has been an issue, not just on the West Coast and through Vancouver, but in uh, larger centers like Toronto as well, uh, foreign investors. And we talk about this eating up our housing and, and these investors who, you know, uh, move in, buy houses, but don't necessarily plan on sticking around or, or might not even live in the house. What needs to be done to stop something like that? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is to ascertain if it is, in fact, a problem, because it's often alleged that foreign ownership is distorting the market. I mean, in a city here, like uh, I live in London, 
in England. And it is very much an issue. It's always been an issue, but it's one of those things that sort of politicians have just resigned to because they want London to be this global capital. It, it is said that in Vancouver, you know, this has been a feature in recent years, but very often when foreigners are buying the property, they're either using it as a sort of a place that they can keep for their own families or they're putting it back on the rental market. So they're not necessarily leaving it vacant. So my understanding is that uh, it, it, that is a feature that only affects very specific markets in Canada, but it's not necessarily the overall problem. Are you referencing the, the foreign investor purchasing? Is that what you're talking correct. about? Yeah. Yeah, and that's correct. Yeah. So, yeah. so freezing that out, do you think it will have a significant impact on the Canadian housing market? Well, as I said, I'm not an expert on the Canadian housing market specifically, and my understanding is that even the experts aren't entirely sure what effect that would have. But I think what I would say is that only in cities probably like Vancouver and Toronto, in other words, very much as sort of the, the cities that are attracting large amounts of foreign capital from overseas, from China in particular, uh, only would that be a significant feature, if at all. I don't think it's really showing up in a lot of other Canadian housing markets. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, Professor, and I'm not sure if it's the same in, in, in London and, and in the UK, but we've heard time and time again that there's a whole sector of people, the millennials, who aren't interested in home ownership to begin with. So could this, uh, to a certain extent, and when I say temporary, years from now, uh, be somewhat of a temporary thing that we won't have the demand because of this younger set that does not want home ownership? Well, yes and no. I mean, it may well affect uh, the prices of homes, but on the other hand, you know, they do have to live somewhere just because they don't own. If they're renting, they're still going onto the market, and that remains a problem, that even if you're renting, uh, the rents have gone up and up and up because there's inadequate supply in Canada. That seems to be the fundamental problem. So, in fact, from the point of view of, of macroeconomic policy, there's a lot to be said for actually discouraging home ownership and encouraging people to rent. But you don't solve the problem just by saying, well, don't bother buying a house, be happy with renting, if they're contributing a very large portion of their income to paying the rent. Because what you really want young people to do, or anybody to do for that matter, is to, on top of whatever their accommodation costs are, to be able to have money left over to invest. And there would be a strong case for saying, rather than sinking all your money into your house, you should be putting more money into other types of instruments, in particular into world stock markets or Canadian companies for that matter um, and not into your home but on the other hand if you're paying rent to somebody else um, and that you're not left with savings the problem isn't solved well fascinating discussion for sure we'll watch how it plays out on the federal election trail we appreciate your perspective this morning thanks for joining us it's a pleasure that is Professor John Rapley, political economist at the University of Cambridge. Just reading an article, and it's um, from the Toronto Star, actually, and it's talking about this issue and affordable housing. And, you know, when, for example, they give two, um, you know, sort of breakdowns of the conservative and liberal plans, but the conservatives' one million homes promise actually breaks down to 142,000 homes. Oh. And the liberal plan comes down to 100,000 new homes. So when they talk about these giant numbers, when you break it down in these markets, it, it's not really that much or that many homes. Um, you know, it seems like a grand promise. Yeah. I, 
I don't know. I, I you know, for me, it gets down to the fact, and, and I like the NIMBY idea because more and more, you know, where are we going to make, you know, more? You have to have the inventory. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in particularly, we don't want people, and the transit is a huge issue. We don't want them on the far reaches of the northeast, south, or west of the city. But we don't want that density. It's a real conundrum. We've got a great point here from Carol that says, uh, you know, because we're focusing on housing, affordable housing, sure. and putting roofs over people's heads who are working Canadians during the selection. She says, more to the point, the expense of a house, heating bills, water bills, mm. garbage collection, the cost of food, internet, communication, all the charges and fees attached to the utilities are prohibitive to the affordability. These need to be addressed. Yeah. Struggle to save and get a mortgage. Then once in the house, the costs... Well, they keep it astronomical. That's a so, great point, Carol. Yeah. All of those points. Very, I mean, it's just the, the the price of groceries today, we know are skyrocketing through this pandemic. That alone, but yeah, the utilities, crazy. Yeah. So you can see how it's prohibitive for young people particularly, but yeah. for many overall. Yeah, so we talk about housing. That's a huge chunk yeah. and what, what we can do there, but just the cost of living. Canada, it's no joke. You you know, a lot of the money flying out of your pocket. So we'll continue that. I think what, we got 17 days left yep. until the election. You know it. Watch that uh, campaign trail and see what those leaders are talking about. Hurricane Ida may have been downgraded to a tropical storm, but it continues to leave destruction as it moves up the East Coast. But joining us live from Philadelphia now is Global News correspondent Reggie Cicchini to talk about the historic floods down south. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. How much rain has fallen from the time that Ida hit? So, look, it depends on where you are uh, in parts of the U.S. Northeast. Uh, Here in Philadelphia, the city received about two months' worth of rain in just about six or seven hours between Wednesday and Thursday morning. Parts of New York saw historic floodings. Uh, The amount of rain that fell through uh, Manhattan was the most rain that they would see over the course of a month in a matter of three hours. There are some parts uh, in Pennsylvania that are still waterlogged right now that actually saw 250 millimeters of rainfall in an eight-hour period so you can just simply see why flooding became such a problem through parts of the northeast what are you hearing from the meteorological services uh, reggie has uh, the the worst uh, past the region in the northeast there yeah, so with the storm having moved out to sea and heading uh, to and through uh, the Maritimes, it is a sunny sky across much of the Northeast. And what we're actually starting to see now, and we started to see it last night, was the water receding backwards. I saw it uh, kind of step back six or seven feet in the couple of hours that we were downtown late yesterday evening. And a lot of the water from the northwestern suburbs in Philly, that's also started uh, to creep its way back down towards the basins uh, to head out. So the brunt of the flooding is over. That said, the damage is still here. You know, I'm 23 stories up right now trying to get away from some of the work down on the street. And looking down, there's a trenched expressway, the Vine Street Expressway that I'm staring at. It's still buried under about nine and a half feet of water. The pumping stations failed here. So parts of Philadelphia are still impassable. And that is something that we are seeing across Pennsylvania, across New York and into New Jersey, where where that tornadic activity was as well. Wow. Nine feet. That's almost unimaginable unless you can see something like that. So obviously, Reggie, with the storm continuing to move, what's left behind, that's the cleanup. But the morning as well, a lot of deaths as a result of this storm. Yeah, absolutely. Look, in the Northeast, it took uh, uh, the brunt of the storm's wrath when it came to loss of life. There are more than 50 people that died uh, through Pennsylvania, through New Jersey, into New York, and even as far north as Connecticut, where a state trooper died when his vehicle was swept off the road because of high water. But while a lot of the focus is on the Northeast, we do have to remember that 
Ida was a Category 4 when it slammed into the U.S. South Coast, decimating parts of Louisiana in towards Mississippi. President Biden is going to be touring Louisiana today to look at some of that damage. Reported nine uh, deaths in Louisiana, four deaths uh, through Alabama in towards Mississippi. So far, fewer lives lost for now, but the damage is much more extensive when you head down to the Gulf Coast. Reggie, let's uh, switch gears and talk about another storm known as COVID-19 and it's interesting. The article I'm looking at right now, and you might have some more up-to-date numbers for me here, says that uh, roughly 62% of the total U.S. population has received one dose. And according to CDC data, about 52.7 fully vaccinated. Those numbers are far below ours here in Canada, and we're pushing to see those numbers increase. I'm wondering if there's a push to see increased vaccinations at this point and what the current situation is. So look, those numbers are uh, about where they stand right now. It is really a slow drive to get as many people vaccinated uh, as they can in the United States, still running up against that vaccine hesitancy, that vaccine resistance. We've seen the the president miss a couple of milestones when it came to trying to get people uh, to get the vaccine. The booster is also playing into that. It really is driving up some of that hesitancy with people saying, well, look, if that vaccine wasn't good enough, we need three now. Maybe we don't need to get it uh, at all. That really is problematic. Uh, Driving this is Delta. But when you look beyond the vaccines, we have to see who is still being impacted most by this virus. And last week, uh, 22% of the cases that were reported in the United States were in people under the age of 18. That's higher than what the entire total number of children were that were infected during the pandemic. So this rush to get people or this push to get people vaccinated is so important in the U.S. because kids really seem to be one of the driving factors right now. And we don't even have half the uh, half the country back in school yet. So there's a fear that the numbers are just going to go up. And Reggie, big topic, hot topic in, in Canada, in every province, is the vaccine passport. Is there talk of that in the U.S.? So look, when we heard from uh, the the uh, COVID briefing, the task force, several weeks ago, it was brought up that there was potentially going to be some kind of COVID passport or at least some kind of proof of vaccination to be able to come into the United States. Nothing has progressed, at least publicly, since those first words were spoken. And this really is starting to get on the nerves of some Democrats, of many Republicans, and of Americans alike who simply want to be able to have family members come into the U.S. because borders are closed. We have no idea what the criteria is within this administration they've been kind of dodging on the answers could there be a vaccine passport it's possible is it going to face resistance absolutely there are so many republican leaders right now that are anti-vaccine passport that this could become problematic for the administration you know it's interesting also because what we've got here is in in edmonton for example today mask mandates go back into effect indoors restaurants shopping centers etc we're having an emergency council meeting today in the city of calgary we're not sure what will come out of that this afternoon could see some more restrictions so i'm wondering what are you seeing as you travel around everyday life restaurants grocery stores is it business as usual or are there still some restrictions in place So look, it really depends on what state you're in uh, to what the mandates are going to be. Here in Pennsylvania, there is a mask mandate if you're in indoor places. But on our drive towards Pennsylvania, we saw some places that weren't really paying attention to that. The further south you go, uh, there are some states that have absolutely no restrictions in place. Washington, D.C. has an indoor mask mandate. So it really varies by the state line that you're in because there cannot be some kind of federal mandate except except on federal property uh, and in places uh, uh, like planes and public transport. 
transportation. But because there's been such a pushback on things to slow the spread, like masks in places like Florida, that's why you're seeing some of this resistance uh, to vaccine passports. They simply say this is an individual responsibility. But as we're seeing with the vaccine numbers, individual responsibility is keeping the United States far behind many other countries around the world in trying to get a hold of this pandemic or get it under control. Reggie, another topic that uh, has certainly been uh, up for discussion, and this one certainly, it, I don't think it'll ever go away. It's a hot topic, most definitely. And uh, the, the abortion ban in Texas has really raised a lot of ire for people you know, across North America. What's the take for most Americans on this? So, look, uh, the Biden administration says that this is a violation of the Constitution. This goes against Roe v. Wade. This takes away the individual right of a woman. Texas says that they are simply doing this to, quote unquote, protect uh, the unborn who have a heartbeat. But it really is facing pushback. And there's concern around the country that if one red state can go and kind of work their way around the Supreme Court, can other red states start to pile on this and use similar language? There is criticism against the court for doing this as a shadow docket and for the uh, majority of the court to not put out an opinion, simply leave a dissenting opinion to the minority. There is a broad fear that this is going to get in the way of women's health. There's also criticism, though. To, against many of the Republicans behind this who were standing in line with women in Afghanistan saying women's rights need to be at the forefront. The Taliban can't get in the way. Mm-hmm. And now here they are in the United States getting in the way of American women's uh, decisions over their own body. So this is a hot topic and it is not one that is going to go away quickly. Busy time down south. Thanks for your time this morning, Reggie. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. Well, it is Pride weekend and there's lots of fun and entertainment planned for the celebration. With all the details, we are joined this morning by Sumit Moonjal, who is Manager of Production and Programming at Calgary Pride. Good morning, Sumit. A very good morning indeed. Happy Pride to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we get into the events and what we can expect from this year's virtual parade, you know, we still hear comments like, well, why do we need to even have Pride or a parade? What's your response when you still hear that, Sumit? Um, I think the my response to that would be it, it furthers into our mission that promotes equality and celebrate Calgary's diversity, which is about gender identity, gender expression, and also the equality and universal rights. That's our values, our core values, and also to further our the cultural landscape and the history celebrating the queer, um, the queer youth, the queer past, and the queer present. So that's the that's the spirit of pride. Zumit, uh, last year we took the wind out of the sails of uh, pride celebrations with COVID nineteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, well, you know, you, we did what we could online to, to, to recognize and celebrate. I'm wondering, can you give us an idea of the mix this year as far as what's available online and in person? So it made some strides for sure, right? Absolutely. So this year, what we did is our most popular event, which was Pride in the Park. We packed that into um, an event which is called Big Pride. It's a drive-in extravaganza, which is going to feature... Uh, local performances and virtual parades. So, virtual, when I say virtual parade, there's going to be a mix of in-person performances, there's going to be um, virtual performances, and our community partners and sponsors come together, compile this virtual videos that you are able to see uh, at the drive-in. And there's going to be a variety of mix um, of uh, virtual drag performances, in-person um drag performances, um, singers from Calgary and all other regions of Alberta as well. So 
this is going to be a great mix of anybody who wanted, the artists who wanted to perform in person or virtual, we wanted to keep that door open for everyone. I love it. So beyond being at uh, Telespark for the uh, the big pride, can you watch mm-hmm. it anywhere else? Absolutely. So tickets are available on Showpass if you want an in-person pride, if you want to attend it in person. But we have all this programming showed online. So folks can join in at calgarypride.ca slash live to see the pride right from the right from the the location, which is at Palace Park. Good stuff there. And, uh, of course, before we get to the uh, parade on uh, Sunday, what else is yeah. going to be happening? So we have our programming, which is happening today, and it's going to be an 18-plus night. Tomorrow we have a family day. It's a daytime programming, and then 18-plus in the evening as well, and on September 5th is the actual parade day where you're going to have the programming starting at 5 p.m., goes till about midnight, and we have Shawnee Kish and uh, Mariah Stokes going to be singing as well. Sumit, doesn't it warm your heart? Because it does mine, you know, that the, the, the number of organizations, businesses, individuals that all want to be allies and really want to be part of this and, and lift up the entire LGBTQ, you know, community that we have here in our city and beyond. But it really has right. changed over the years, hasn't it? It has. And, and it's, always, it's always evolving. And what we say is um, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So it's a journey of, you know, learning um, stumbling, getting up, moving forward, and keep learning and just moving through. That's what I say. Mm-hmm. Sumit, it sounds like quite the undertaking. It sounds like a busy a few days ahead. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering, what was the draw for you to take part and uh, give your time? I think the draw was to curate a programming which is holistic, and it kind of includes the community, includes the greater community, and just bottle that into a format which is still safe, it's our way of curating a programming that captures this essence of pride, although we can't march through the streets, but it's still in a safe format. And while we navigate through these times where we are always topsy-turvy around different regulations and whatever is going on along with our COVID restrictions. Well, hopefully in 2022, we will be back marching on the streets with the community joining in with us. But I know this year, um, our partners over at Global TV and we here at 770 CHQR uh, have a little a float, as it were, that will be in the virtual parade this year. So always an honor to, uh, to chat with you and, and you guys at Calgary Pride do great work. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Have That's good- you too. Happy Pride to you. That's Sumit Munjal, who is the manager of production and programming at Calgary Pride. And again, all the details online, calgarypride.ca. And I like that the, the, there's that mix because it doesn't have to be all online, but for safety, you've got to do it and yep. you've got to recognize it. And it's just, it's crazy when you said that, you know, hopefully by 2022, it can be, you know, back to a normal feeling event. Because if you would have said this, you know, last spring, for example, as you looked ahead to the festivities, you could understand it. But a year later, like it's 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 mind boggling. No, I thought it. for sure we'd we'd have a parade again this year, but it's not to be. But you know what? If if you want to get out and do some something and have some fun, there's lots of entertainment for the whole family. That's the great part of Pride always. But they do great stuff at the drive-in, so it's at the Telus Spark. And I don't know if have you been there yet to do and watch anything Within the parking lot yeah, itself. No, they put I have big I've screens. Been Spark, but yeah. And then they have stages, so there's some parts of it are live performances, and then some of it's you know the music comes over the speakers of your car stereo. So 
it's a safe way to do it. Mm-hmm. It's also kind of a warm and relaxed way to do it yes. too. You're sitting in your own car. You can hang out with some friends, but lots of fun stuff going on for Pride again this you year. Mentioned, uh, you mentioned know, hopping online for the full schedule, calgarypride.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.